you would often go from country, uh, or from city to city, from village to village, from town to town, from region to region, um, and he would say, uh, this is who I am. He'd reveal himself to the people. He would make these claims. And, uh, and so I found it fitting for us to go, well, hold on. Uh, we should investigate these claims. We should pause for a moment and, and look at Jesus and, and, ask, and hopefully answer the question, who, who are you? Who did you say you are? And so we're going to spend the next eight weeks unpacking that, this morning being the intro to those seven I am claims that Jesus made. And so if you, I know where you guys are sitting, we've got these really, really cool um, it's like a, I don't know what to call it. It's like a bookmark slash postcard slash card fan. There we go. You can use it as a fan. Um, I think it's really, really cool. And it uh, basically outlines what we're going to be doing the next eight weeks. But also it's an opportunity to grab a couple more if you want. They're at the back of the coffee station. Just to hand them out to people. Just to give them to people. People who you know are, are doubting who Jesus is. Or, or maybe investigating. Uh, they're wondering, they're going, listen, I'm, I'm a little interested about this, this person called Jesus. This is a great opportunity for them to come and investigate with us. It's a, a journey that God is taking us through his word uh, as he reveals who his son, Jesus, is. We, um, in preparation for this, for this series, um, it made me think a little bit and made me realize that we actually live in an interesting time. Uh, we live in an era where uh, information is at our fingertips, literally, at our fingertips, that we can access the world from our cell phones. And, and as amazing as that is, at the same time, I feel like it leaves us somewhat disillusioned, especially when it comes to uh, the whole reality of knowing people. I mean, I look at my Facebook page, and I think I have about 800 friends, I don't really know 800 people. Often I'll, I'll get a friend request and I'll look and I'll be like, I have no idea who this person is. But then kind of see like, oh, but they're connected to my one friend who I haven't seen in five or ten years. Except. And then it makes me feel like, man, I, I know all these people. Whether it's Instagram or Twitter, the people that follow us, it, it leaves us with this, this false illusion that we know people. I mean, I, I know when I'm hanging out with some of my friends and, and we're talking about sport and we're talking about individual rugby players, we'll, we'll talk about them like, like we know these guys. We'll know their age and, and their nicknames and how much they bench press. It's like we know them. See, technology has done that. It's allowed us to search people and to know information about them, but leaving us think that we actually know them. See, the, the information that we find on the internet, um, it, it's, a lot of it is kind of personal information. It's so personal that you could probably sit with someone that you've never met before, but you've scanned through their Facebook page and go, hey man, how's your wife? <laughs> how's your daughter? I saw that she went to the doctor last week. So you posted that. How's your new job? You enjoying it? Very cool. I mean, that guy will probably be looking at you and going, what on earth is happening? How does this guy know all this information? But that's the world that we live in. Information at our fingertips. And so we, we think we know people, but you see, this is what psychologists say. They, they, they talk about this as it's an impersonal knowledge of that person. 
It's an impersonal knowledge of that person. And so they say, listen, if you, if you truly want to say, I know that person, it's, it's where you've been to, to the, the deepest part of that person's life, the deepest area of their hearts, where they get to sh- share with you the, the fears that they have, the anxiety that grips them. They say when you get to that place, when you're able to sit with that person and get to that place, that you're not only sharing the, the joys that they have, but you're also sharing the pains that they experience. That there's vulnerability there. They say that's, that's when you can say, I know that person. I, I know that individual. And that everything else is just impersonal knowledge. See, I share this because I believe the church today and many Christians today have an impersonal knowledge of Jesus Christ. If Jesus had a Facebook page, they would go, no, 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 I I liked that one statement that he made. I I shared that one quote that he said because it resonated with my heart. I enjoyed the pictures that he put on his album, hanging out with the disciples. And then we show up to gatherings like this or, or maybe your weekly Bible study and we talk as if we know who Jesus is. We have an impersonal knowledge of who he is. But here's the thing about God and, and, and Jesus, his son, through the Holy Spirit, is that he, he invites us to know him. He, he doesn't want us to live in that space where it's kind of like I, I have an idea of who he is. No, he invites us. He says, I I want you to truly know who I am. I want you to truly experience who I am. I believe that in Jesus' time, it was no different to how it is today. He he experienced this, this reality where people were like, we know who God is. But as he began to engage them, realized you have no idea who the Father is. You've read the scriptures, but you have no idea who he is. And so he felt it necessary to go, okay, listen, I need to unpack to the world who I am. Because if they know who I am, then they'll know who the Father is. And so he begins the I am's. The seven I am's that he he begins to unpack to the world so that they might truly know who he is and experience life to the full. And so that's my hope these next eight weeks, that, that if, if you're sitting here and you, you've, you think you know Jesus, or, or you've, you come to a place where you realize, man, I, I kind of have an impersonal relationship with him. I hope that the, the next eight weeks would get you to a point where you go, man, I am being blown away by the person of Jesus Christ. I am being blown away by who he is. And the beautiful thing is that he invites me to know him. He invites us to know him. And so as we intro this series, I want to spend some time in a a piece of scripture that many of us would know. It's a well-known piece of scripture. It's found in John chapter 4. And so if you have your Bible, you want to go there, meet me in John chapter 4, but it'll be up on the screen as well. I'm going to read quite a bit of this story. It's, It's where Jesus has an encounter with the Samaritan woman at the well. But this morning, guys, I want us to, to read it with different eyes. See, many of us will come to the scriptures and kind of look at them as if they are uh, academic pieces of work. But rather, I want us to come to it like a child would come to a storybook. 
They want to immerse themselves in what's happening. See, I want us to be a fly on the wall to, to feel the emotions that are happening here. John chapter 4. And so what I, what I usually do is I, I read the Scripture and then I pray, but, but I want to do things differently because we're going to read quite a bit of Scripture. I'm going to pause and stop at certain places and just unpack first, and then we'll dive into God's Word. And so as I pray, I ask that you would pray for me um, as I pray for you, that God would do something profound here this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. That you meet us where we are. And we get to see that right here in this story. This real life event. Father, help us to see you for who you are. Savior. King of kings. And in the midst of that, that, Father, we would be drawn to you. And so it's to that end that I ask that you would stand in my body, that you would think through my mind, that you would speak through my mouth those things you'd have us know, say, and do, so that we might glorify you, that it would be about your kingdom and not ours. In Jesus' beautiful, beautiful name, amen. So John chapter 4, hear these words of our Father. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was the sixth Hour. And I just want to pause here for a moment. Um, Jesus decides to go through Samaria. He decides to go through a town where the Samaritans live. Now, that's tremendously important. See, Jesus, as a Jewish man, was to be never like to hang out with Samaritans. It was, it was just uncommon. Culturally, it was, it was never allowed. Never allowed. In fact, if, if they had to get to a point and there was a town where Samaritans lived, they would rather go round than go straight through. And we all know the straightest or the quickest point or the quickest way between two points is a straight line. But they would rather go all the way round than to have to walk through Samaritans. See, they hated Samaritans. They considered them half-breeds. They hated the Samaritans. But Jesus decides to go through Samaria. And we'll see why in a moment. Verse 7, A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Now I want you to feel the weight of that. Don't just read it and go, okay, cool, Jewish people didn't hang out with Samaritans. The, the fact that she's like, listen, Jewish people have no dealings with Samaritans. What are you doing? It would be the equivalent of going, you know what, as a black person, I, I want no dealings with white people. I avoid them like the plague. It's the equivalent of a white person going, you know what, there's no ways that I'm going to go through uh, central Pretoria because there's so many black people there. I have no dealings with the blacks. That's the weight that I want you to feel here. 
That's why she's so shocked when Jesus, a Jewish man, is speaking to her. But on top of that, she's a woman. She's a woman. Again, in the Jewish culture, men just, you had no time for women. Yes, you would engage them and speak to them, but it was, it was never about important things. It was either just to hey, send a message or to get them to serve. They were insignificant. And so here we find a Samaritan woman. On the scale, she would be right at the end, completely insignificant, of no worth, no value. But yet Jesus finds time to meet with her. Jesus pauses for a moment and says, I have a divine appointment with you. The king of kings pauses and says, I want to make some time for you. That should be powerful for us. As we sit here, and and I don't know what area of life it is where you feel insignificant, where you feel that you are not of worth. Jesus wants you to know the king of kings has time for you. The king of kings will pause in whatever he's doing to make time for you. We know this because he left heaven for us. He had a divine appointment with a Samaritan woman. Verse 10, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one, and the one, you, are now, the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah... I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking to her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out to town and were coming to him. Now, we're going to skip a few verses, not because uh, the ones we're skipping are not important, but I want to continue the story. 
See, there's kind of a pause there and, and something happens. Jesus interacts with his disciples. But I want to pick up where the Samaritan woman is. So verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because what you said that we believe, for we have heard ourselves. We know that this indeed, this indeed, the Savior of the world. It's a powerful story. And it's unbelievably important. If we want to journey through the seven I am's of who Jesus is, the claims that he makes, we have to start here. See, the main point of the story, and it's, it's very seldom that I do this, I usually work through the passage and then hit you with the main point, but I want to start with the main point today. The main point is that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. He's the Savior of the world. He's the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the one who came to take away the sins of man. That's the main point. That's what Jesus is trying to get across, not only to the Samaritan woman, but to us here. But let's see how that happens. Let's pick up in verse 6, where we find this woman at the well. See, the text tells us that it was at the sixth hour. See, in Jewish culture, they would start counting the hours from 6 a.m. They would count the the hours where there was sunlight. And so from 6 would be one hour, 7 would be two hours. And so the sixth hour is 12 o'clock midday. Jesus finds this woman at this well, 12 o'clock midday. That is an unusual time to be at a well. An unusual time to be at a well. And I don't think things have changed much since that time. See, I remember when I um, we used to visit my grandmother uh, back at home in the village. Before she had running water and electricity to her place, uh, the community had to go to, to this one area where there was a tap and, and a water and, and to be able to get the water. But, but they would go in the morning. They would go at 6 a.m. or they would go in the evening. At 6 p.m. Because it was the coolest time of the day. I remember being woken up and being sent there and going, man, I really don't want to do this. It's so early in the morning. But at 12 midday, I'd be like, man, I'm thankful I went at 6 in the morning. Because it is hot. And to get there and to stand waiting for your turn to get water in the blazing heat, no one would do that. Also, it made sense to go early in the morning because then you would have water for the day. And if you went in the evening, then you'd have water for whatever you needed to do in the evening, but then a little bit left over for the morning. But to go at 12 midday was just so unusual. On top of that, when you go at 6 a.m. and there's a whole bunch of people going, it's a time just to hang out with friends. It's a time to catch up with, with neighbors It was kind of a a social event for people to gather together at the well. But here we find her at the hottest time of the day, and she's by herself. The hottest time of the day, and she's by herself. She's alone. Why would she come alone? See, the, the text tells us 
in verse 16 to 18, we're, we're told that, that she had, had five husbands and the one that she was with was not her husband. Now, we're not told uh, whether maybe the, the situation was she got married to five people, five men, and then they died. And then she just decided, you know what, I, I'm not going to marry anymore because this never ends well, so I'm just going to pick someone maybe who's already married, and if they die, then I don't have to feel the hurt. I don't know. We're not told why that was the situation. She may have been promiscuous. Again, the text doesn't tell us that. But what we do know from the story is that she was covered with shame and guilt. The fact that she decided to come at a time when there was no one there, she was covered with shame and guilt. She, she didn't want to interact with people. She didn't want to be in community. Her shame and guilt had put her in a position of isolation. The shame had kept her from living in community. So she heads to the well alone, but this day was different. This day was different. She was going to have an encounter with Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. This day was different. And so she shows up. She has this engagement with Jesus. They go back and forth. Jesus is, is trying to reveal to her that, listen, I am the Savior of the world. He talks about the water. It's like, listen, the, the water that I have for you, when you drink it, you will not thirst again. I have come to give you life. But in this interaction, this woman has obstacles challenges, these barriers. She's struggling to see and believe Jesus for who he is. But then eventually she gets to a point where I believe for those who've crossed the line of faith, for those who are in Christ today have been at that point. She gets to this point where she's like, okay, I hear you, Jesus. Okay, give me this water. You say that the water that you have to give, I will not thirst again. I am tired of being thirsty. I don't want to come here time and time again. Give me this water. Now again, the text doesn't tell us whether she genuinely means it or if she's being sarcastic. The sarcasm, it's like, okay, Jesus, I hear you. You, you don't even have anything to draw water from, and you're going to give me water that, like, if I drink it, I'll never thirst again. Whatever. Let me just play along. Okay, give me this water. Or if she's gotten to a point where she's hearing what Jesus is saying, she's thinking about her own life, and she's going, I've hit the ceiling. Nothing is ever good enough, nothing satisfies anymore. But here, here's this man, and, and he's, he's proposing to me that, that he has water where if I drink, I will find life. So she looks at Jesus and says, verse 15, So give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Now an opportunity here, an opportunity where, where many of us would go, I have them. I have them. This is an opportunity to, 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 do the, to give them the Lord's prayer. Come, repeat this after me. No, no, let's do an altar call. We got them. 
We've got them asking the question. Let's, let's, let's do the altar call. Play the music. Cue the lights. See, for many of us, we, we see this as an, an opportunity to say, hold on, listen, uh, okay, let me, let, me, let me explain to you how you come to Christ. But Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus does something completely different. Jesus continues to engage her. Jesus continues to engage her. He, he engages her sin. Now this is strange. I'm reading this and I'm going, man, in our time this just doesn't fit because, because we live in a time where, where people don't want to talk about sin. It's like, no, no, let's not talk about sin. Let's talk about love. It's about love and love and love. And, and I get that. I get that. I truly understand that. But, but here's the thing. It's only when I acknowledge my sin do I really understand the depth of love that the Father has for me. I have to understand my sin, how how I have sinned against the Father, and that even in the midst of that, God's love continues to reach out to me. And so Jesus engages her sin. Jesus reaches to that place where, where it's vulnerable. And begins to chat through it. Where her shame and guilt live. Jesus says, listen, I want to talk about that. Why do that? Why would Jesus do that? Because he knows. He knows who he is. And he knows that he's the only person that can bring healing. He knows he's the only person that can reach to that that area. that, that, That deep vulnerability. And begin the process of healing. Jesus looks at her and acknowledges her guilt and shame. Jesus can see that she's been judged over and over again, that the community wants nothing to do with her. And Jesus says, you know what? I can heal that. I can heal that. Jesus engages that space so that the process of healing may begin. And, and here's the thing, that, that expose, the, when Jesus reveals that, it's, it's not for his entertainment. He's not standing there going, man, this is really fun getting you to, to, to see you uh, squirm like this. It's not for him. It's for the woman. It's for, it's for us. Jesus wants us to see where we are. He wants us to see what is, has gripped us. It's like in the garden. After Adam and Eve sin, and then they go into hiding, and God says, Adam, where are you? It's not that God had no idea where Adam was. No, God is fully in control. He's sovereign. He sees everything. He knows everything. He wanted Adam to know that you're hiding. Do you acknowledge that you're hiding? When Jesus exposes the sin in our lives, it's for us to realize that we are living in darkness. That we're living in darkness. That we're hurting. That we're ill. And that we are in desperate need of healing. But notice what the woman does when she's now faced with this reality. 
And it's something that we do. It's something that I do. Whenever I'm, I'm in the space of darkness, I've been gripped by a particular sin, whether it's anxiety or, or, or lust or shame or guilt, when a, a shimmer of light pierces through that darkness, I quickly want to avoid the situation. See, I don't like it when, when people are in that space, that place of vulnerability. And so she realizes what's happening as Jesus engages her sin. She's like, hold on, this is massively uncomfortable. She changes the situation. She changes the topic. Verse 19, after Jesus says to her, and the man that you went with is not even your husband, her response is, so I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. How random is that? Here we are talking about your situation. Now you want to talk about where we're supposed to worship. But we do that all the time. We do that all the time. When a shimmer of light makes its way into the dark places of our, life, of our lives, we get super uncomfortable and we turn away. We, we, we move from what I call the, the deepest level of your heart, which is vulnerability, and we, we quickly go up to cliche or facts or we want to talk about like opinions and maybe even transparency. See, for many of us, we're, we're comfortable in the area of transparency and we think, man, that's the deepest level of my heart. But it's not. See, transparency is, is for me to stand here and just to go, hey guys, this, these are my shortcomings. Look, look at my shortcomings. Look at my, my faults. This is where I'm weak. And, and hear me, it's a great place to be, but there's, there's a deeper place. See, transparency is for me to, to share with you where I'm at. Vulnerability is to allow you to come into that space and try to help me to get out of there. Jesus says, that's where I want to be. If you're going to receive healing from me, that's where I need to be. I not only need to see where you are, but I need to be in that brokenness so that I might bring healing. And so she, she sees, oh my goodness, this is where Jesus is going. Let me talk about something else. Let me shift the topic. She asks about, so where are we supposed to, to worship? Jesus isn't startled by that. I often talk about how Jesus has like proper swagger. He really does. He's, he's, he's not shocked by that. He's not like, oh my goodness, she's trying to dodge the whole situation. He's, he, he answers it. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. He's like, you want to talk about theology? Let's talk theology. How many of us do that? Especially in our circles. We're, we're quick to talk about academic content. When someone wants to know, listen, how are you doing? What are your struggles? What are you afraid of? What keeps you up at night? Well, actually, I read in uh, Systematic Theology that... Uh, uh, a pre-mill means to be, uh, this is when Jesus is coming. 
It's like, wait, what, what are you talking about? That's not what I asked you. We so quickly run to academic content, head knowledge. When Jesus is saying, I'm after your heart. I'm not saying that those things aren't important, but I'm after your heart. Where are you? What are you afraid of? What is that one thing, if people knew about you, you'd be devastated. You would never show up to a gathering. You, you would avoid community. You'd want to live in isolation. Let's talk about that. But because Jesus is Jesus, he's like, if you want to talk theology, we can also talk that. Because I know more about Scripture than you do because I wrote it. And even through that, I'll, I'll expose the, the reality that, that you don't know as much as you think you do. And you are in desperate need of healing. The woman goes, man, I, I really need to get out of this situation. I can only imagine as a fly on the wall, her head down going, man, this, this is bad. I really don't want to talk about this. I really don't want him to, maybe she's starting to cry. I don't know, but she's going, I, I really don't want to talk about this. This is uncomfortable. Have you ever been in that place? Where's that for you? really trying to get out of this conversation, she gives what I call the Sunday school answer. It's a true answer, but it's a Sunday school answer. Verse 25, she, she says, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ, when he comes, he will tell us all these things. She's like, well, I'm just going to give the Sunday school answer. It's Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Hopefully, that, that will stop the conversation and then we'll just kind of carry on with what we're doing. If I can just say, Jesus, hey, how are you doing? Jesus! Don't talk, like, Jesus, right? That's the answer. Cool, they don't have to, like, no one's going to talk to me ever again. It, it's, it's like getting together on a Sunday, having coffee, and, and, and someone asking, hey, remember that struggle that you were going through? Remember that fear that you were wrestling with? And not wanting to go there. You throw out the Sunday school answer, hoping that that'll, that'll go, oh, okay, great. I'm glad that Jesus is still at the center of your heart. When in actual fact, he isn't. He isn't. That's what she does. She says, I, I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he'll, he'll tell us all these things. But Jesus being Jesus, and this is how I like to see it, he probably pauses maybe even takes a step back, leans into that position. Or maybe he's, he's, he holds her with all that guilt and shame and pain and she's sobbing. He, he holds her. He embraces her. And then he says to her, that Messiah that you're talking about, that's me. I'm here. I'm standing right in front of you. I am the Christ. I am the Savior of the world. I am here to bring healing to your brokenness. 
I can only imagine this is now officially an awkward moment. If it wasn't awkward before, it definitely is now. It is now an awkward moment, but, but Jesus is not bothered by that. Jesus isn't bothered by your awkward moment. Whether you're sobbing or crying or in pain or feeling like you're not good enough, that doesn't bother him. He continues to engage. We're told the disciples come back and, and like they're super confused. At this point, they're like, what on earth is Jesus doing? Hanging out with a Samaritan woman. Why, why is she crying? Why, why is he holding her? What, what is going on? It's, it's so awkward. The text tells us that they say nothing. You know that awkward moment when people just kind of show up and it's like, what do you, like, hey, what do we say? Like, what do we, this is weird. And again, Jesus is not bothered by that. He's not bothered by that. When we live in, in spaces where we're constantly looking and going, what are people saying? What are, what are they thinking? What are they? He's not bothered by that. He meets you where you are. He embraces you. He wants you to know that He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior of the world, and He's here to heal your brokenness. We're told that the woman just picks up and, and heads back into town. Starts telling people, verse 29, she goes, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? I can only imagine like, kind of what's happening uh, in, in that town where people are going, hold on, is she talking to us? That promiscuous woman, like, is, is she talking to us? This woman who wanted to be in isolation is now running to the community and saying, come and see. Come and see this man who, who has told me everything that I have ever done. He embraced me. He engaged me. You need to come and see this. See, that guilt and shame that once enslaved her is no longer there. She has now been emboldened by the grace of Jesus Christ. That guilt and shame that, that always kept her head down, away from people, now has her running into the community, screaming to the people, come and see. The grace of God gives us everything that we need to engage a broken world. To borrow the words of the poetic theologian Andy Minio. This is what he says about the gospel of grace. He says, The gospel of grace disturbs the comfortable and comforts the disturbed. That's beautiful. The, the, the gospel of grace disturbs the comfortable. When you're sitting there in darkness, you've been there for so long that, that your eyes have adjusted to the dark. Much like being in the bushveld, your, your eyes just adjust and you forget that you're in the dark. You forget that you're in desperate need of a savior. Things just become comfortable. I can believe it was normal for this woman every day to go at 12 when there was no one around. She had become comfortable with that reality. 
the gospel of grace disturbs the comfortable. Because that light is so bright, there's, there's almost nothing that you can do but look into it and embrace it. But then it comforts the disturbed. And here's the thing, all of us are disturbed. All of us are disturbed. And Jesus says, I have come to bring comfort to you. That anxiety that has gripped you, that fear, that bitterness, that anger, that shame, that guilt, I have come to bring comfort. That's what the gospel of grace does. We're told that this woman probably went from home to home telling people, you need to come see this. Here's my testimony. You need to come see this. See, many people believed because of this woman's testimony. We're told many more came out and they had a personal encounter with Jesus and they too were transformed. Verse 39 to 41 tells us that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did and yet he still embraced me. Jump to verse 42. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you have said that we believe. The grace, this grace that has given you boldness to come and tell us this, this beauty of who Jesus is. And it's not only because of that. For we have heard ourselves. We have had this personal encounter with Jesus. And we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. It's a powerful story. Unbelievably powerful story. But, but there's, there's two ways to engage the story. There's two ways to, to land the plane on this story. And, and here's the thing, I believe both are right. But the one takes us deeper. See, the first way is what I call the, the impersonal way of, of looking at the story. See, we could, we could probably, after studying this text, we, we could make these statements. Jesus meets people where they are. True story. True story. Jesus meets people where they are. We could say, uh, uh, people really love and want to worship Jesus after an encounter with him. That's true. After a real encounter with Jesus, people want to worship him. That's, that's true. That's, that's right here in the text. Uh, uh, we could say, Jesus introduces freedom. He introduces freedom. It's true. Jesus makes people bold. Jesus loves us more than we could ever imagine. We could even say, listen, testimonies are powerful. Jesus uses those. Testimonies are powerful. All of this true. But if we leave it there, it's impersonal. It's an impersonal understanding of who Jesus is. And so I believe we need to go deeper, that we should read this personally, that we should allow this to, to go to the deepest parts of our heart, to that place of vulnerability, that we should see ourselves as the woman at the well. We should see ourselves as the woman at the well, standing in front of Jesus, trying to figure out why he would engage us, the King of Kings, the Son of the living God, why he would want to have a divine appointment with you. 
and that He engages our hearts. He goes to the deepest places of our sin and that He wants to bring healing. We need to remember the time when we cried out to Jesus, give me this water because I don't want to thirst anymore. If you've crossed the line of faith, you, you need to go back to that time and go, you know what, Jesus, give me this water. I am in desperate need of you. For those who've been walking with Jesus for a while, the problem is that this, this becomes academic after a while. You pick it up, you read it, you've got your three points, write them down in your journal, go, I'm going to share them at Citigroup, kind of show them, you know, yeah, man, I, I know Jesus. But you don't allow it to go deep into your heart and expose those areas of brokenness where you need healing. See, the grace of God, it will draw you in. It will embrace you. It will remind you that you are loved more than you could ever imagine. I want all of us to get to a point where we can say, I know Jesus. I know Jesus and He knows me. Maybe a better way to say it is, is because Jesus the perfect Savior who knows my deepest, darkest secrets loves me and longs to know me. Because that's true, I get to know the Savior. I get to know the King of Kings. And not, I don't just get to know about Him, but I truly get to know Him. That's my hope as we jump through the series. That as we look at the seven claims of Jesus, the seven I am's of Jesus, that there wouldn't, be, there wouldn't be these nice little things that we see on coffee cups and t-shirts. I am the door. How cool is that? We should put that on a t-shirt with a nice little door. That'll sell. I am the bread of life. Yeah, let's, that'd be really cool. We could play that and, and maybe let's bring bread and, and have it. Like, guys, I, I believe when Jesus was saying this, he was saying, listen, I want you to know who I am. I truly want you to know who I am. I want you to experience me. Because what I have to give is far greater than anything that this world wants to offer you. I hope that you would journey with us. And as you do that, that you would really come and say, you know what, I, I, I'm going to put all these other things aside. And I want to look to Jesus and I want to know who you truly are. That's my hope. I believe that's the Scripture's hope. I believe that's what Jesus wants. Would you journey with us? Would you come along? Would you, would you bring your questions? Would you bring your doubts? But just come. He will meet you where you are. Let's pray. And so, Father, we, we, we come now and pleading with you that you would you truly would meet us where we are. That we're broken. As we look to the world, we, we can see that we live in a broken society. And for many people, they are just unaware of that. They, they, they live in darkness and have just adjusted to it. And they, they believe the lie that this is it, that this is all that life has to offer. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would, you would come into this place and you would come into this series and that you would reveal yourself to us and, and that this city would truly know who you are. You say that you are the light of the world. Would you shine your light so powerfully that people would, they would have nothing else to do but to turn to you. You truly are a God of the city. We love you, Lord. We praise you. Would you show us, not just now, but, uh, and not just throughout the course of this series, but throughout our time here on earth, that we desperately, desperately, desperately need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.